Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Good morning, how are you? Oh man, I can tell. I got some work to do today. All right, let's open up our Bibles to Hebrews chapter 5. I am really excited about this text. I've been looking forward to it. It is, in fact, the next few chapters, Hebrews 5, 6, 7, 8, and 9, are some of the hardest in all of Hebrews to really understand. So it's going to be a challenge for us, and I'm just excited about it. I feel a little bit like one of Georgia's early season opponents, like Louisiana Lafayette going up against Georgia, or Auburn or somebody going up against Georgia. Oh, yeah, it was a joke for all you Auburn fans. But I, I, I can't, if we, if we, let me, let me tell you, let me prime the pump here. If we can get what's going on in this text in, in chapter six, seven, eight, and nine, it will help us. I think it will open up vistas for you to see how the Bible fits together. It's just, it's really glorious. So uh, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to read our text. Hebrews chapter 5, verses 1 through 10. In fact, I might back up a little bit in chapter 4 just to set the stage. And then I think the best way to help us understand this text is to answer and ask three questions. So here's the three questions. Got them up on the screen. This is our outline today. I want to just kind of do my best to answer these three questions. What did Old Testament priests do? We're going to get into this section of Hebrews where he's talking about the priesthood. In fact, that's really... The whole point of Hebrews in one way is to compare and contrast and show how Jesus is better than anything that's gone before, whether it's to these first century Jews, whether it's Moses or the law or the promised land or now the priesthood or when we get into chapter 9, the sacrifices, that Jesus is better. So, But first, we have to understand the argument. So first question, what did Old Testament priests do? Secondly, And this is going to be fun. Who is Melchizedek, this mysterious figure that arises out of nowhere, and why is he important? And then thirdly, how does this help us understand and follow Jesus better? All right, let me read the text, and then let's pray and work our way through it. Let me start in chapter 4, verse 14, because although we have chapters and verses in our English Bibles, those chapters and verses were inserted much later. And sometimes they aren't in the best spot. They don't necessarily uh, clearly reflect the flow of logic of the writer. And I think probably verses 14 and through 16 of Hebrews chapter 4 begin this new section, this argument about the priesthood. So let me back up to these two, three verses at the end of chapter 4, which are the easiest to understand. Uh, And then we're going to get into chapter 5. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Verse 16, this may be the whole theme of Hebrews. We could boil it down into one verse. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Amen? Amen. Okay, chapter 5. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men 
in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He's speaking of Old Testament priests now. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. That's quoting Psalm 2, verse 7. As he also says in another place, this is quoting Psalm 110, verse 4, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, verse 7, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Being designated by God a priest after a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Okay, this is the word of the Lord. I think we're going to get through verse 6 and maybe leave 7 through 10 for next week. But let me pray and ask the Lord to help us. Lord, thank you for your word. What a privilege it is to open our Bibles. We need to meet you in this word, Lord. We need, we need to be made more like Jesus because of this word. So by your spirit, that wrote this word, that inspired this word, would you change us and make us more like Christ? Help me help these people and help us focus. And I pray that you would do this all for our good and your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, question number one. What did Old Testament priests do? I think the first three verses of our text summarize the answer to that question. And he's speaking now. This is the contrast. He's just told us in the end of chapter 4 what a great high priest Jesus is. And he's, he's now going to contrast Jesus with the Old Testament priests. And he's going to give us a description of what Old Testament priests do. And so in verse 1, he transitions from the great high priest that he's been speaking about, of Jesus, now to the high priest in the Old Testament and the law of Moses or the Levitical priesthood and, and the, the, the household of Aaron. And he says... Uh, there, he gives us two reasons, or two, two, two uh, explanations of what Old Testament priests do. Look at verse 1. It's for every high priest chosen from among men is, acted, is, is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sin. So the first thing that we can say about what Old Testament priests do is that they, they act on behalf of men before God, and they are there to offer sacrifices, and this is really important. This is just one of those things that we read quickly, but if we just sort of sit and think about this text, it tells us a lot about our relationship to God. It says that these priests offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. So inherent in verse 1 here is that, that we are sinners and that God is holy and that God is right 
to justly punish sin. And what's happening here in the Old Testament and the duties of priests is that God, in his kindness, after creation, after the fall, about midway through the, the, the journey, the, the, the dealings with Israel, God gave them the law through Moses after he rescued them from Egypt. And what is included in this law which was never meant, listen to this, is never meant to be a means of salvation, but merely to show people, to show God's people what they would need for salvation. So God gives them this law through Moses, and it's an intricate system of how they are to obey God, to believe God, to act as the people of God. And Leviticus in particular, the end of Exodus, and Leviticus in particular, you know that book that you get bogged down on about February of your Bible reading plan? Well, hopefully th these next few chapters in Hebrews will help us understand the purpose of what's going on in Leviticus, which is mostly about this whole system, the sacrificial system that Old Testament priests were given to lead, and they were to sacrifice for the sins of the people. And there were many different sacrifices, grain offerings and different other types of things. And, but, but primarily, the, the high point of Leviticus and the high point of this whole system of animal sacrifice in the Old Testament was the Day of Atonement, Leviticus chapter 16, where the high priest would enter once a year into this tabernacle, the tent in the desert, or later on, the permanent building, temple in Jerusalem, and he would enter into the Holy of Holies, to this place where God's presence would abide. And he would sprinkle the blood of this perfect lamb on the altar there, the, where the mercy seat is, to atone for, to sacrifice, to appease God's wrath. And so that's what Old Testament priests did. They, they, they functioned as this go-between, between the holiness of God and the sinfulness of of man. But this, this, before we move on, let's just pause for a second and, and do some application here. Let's just realize that this is teaching us something very, very important. First, let's remember, and we're going to talk about this in a moment, is that this, this Old Testament system of sacrifice, and even these Old Testament priests, were never meant to ultimately solve the problem of human rebellion against God, but it was meant to be a picture of the holiness of God, the sinfulness of man, and then most importantly, what is needed. So this whole system, priests, the sacrificial system, the Old Testament, all of it is really meant to be an arrow, a big, huge arrow, pointing us to the coming one that will finally and fully take away our sin. But let's get back into the Old Testament. Let's just get back into this idea of sin here. And let's just realize that there's a couple things that we need to realize. That First of all, is that we, we will never really get the Bible or get Christianity unless we first get this. And it is this fundamental point that, just think about what's woven into this first verse, is that we are created. We're the creature. He's the creator. He's holy. We're not. And we are beholden to him. We are accountable to him. And this is just the way things are. God is not there for us, but we exist for him. And we have, all of us, our first parents, Adam and Eve in the garden, and now every person since them, save Jesus, has rebelled against God and has disobeyed him and 
and we can quibble, but you can, you, we, can, we can have long conversations about this, but it's just the clear witness of Scripture that all mankind in their natural state is accountable to God and needs something to happen between us and God for us to be reconciled to Him. And then the second thing I think that we need to realize before we move on is that, is that none of this, this sin that needs to be atoned for in this whole system of the Old Testament sacrifice, which is pointing to Jesus, none of this surprise God. It's not plan B. In fact, and this is where the Bible, I think, I think this is the greatest mystery of all, that God has in some way planned for all of this. He knew this would happen. In a sense, I think we need to be able to use the word, he ordained it, he purposed it, but yet he did it in such a way that he is not the author of or culpable for the sin that needs the sacrifice in order to be reconciled to him. And how do, we, how do we solve that tension? Well, I don't think on this side of eternity there is necessarily any solving of that tension, but I want you to see those two things, and I want you to, and this is just, I think this is the baseline, this is ground zero of the humility of man before a holy God. So I want you to see these two truths and realize them and rest in them in God's utter sovereignty. Let me just read you a couple things. This is from our statement of faith about, about sin and why we even need to be reconciled to God. This is what it says, paragraph three of the fall of man. We believe that man, it's all of us, was created in holiness. Adam and Eve, our first parents, and everybody since was created in holiness under the law of his maker, but by voluntary transgression, in other words, our own willful sin, fell from that holy and happy state, in consequence of which all mankind, that's us, are now sinners, not by constraint, but by choice, being by nature utterly void of that holiness required by the law of God, positively inclined to evil, and therefore under just condemnation to eternal ruin without defense or excuse. That's the natural state of all people before salvation. We are inclined by our nature to disobey God. Even people, this is really important, even people that seem to be good moral neighbors that aren't necessarily trusting in Christ or they know nothing of Christianity, at the bottom of their, their morality that seems to be good in comparison to other more wicked seeming people, at the bottom of that is not true goodness if it does not acknowledge the source of life and goodness and grace, it is at its core, even the best of human morality, if we can put it that way, is rebellion, is treason against the creator if it does not acknowledge the source of all goodness, which is God. So nobody is good by nature. We are all born in sin. And you might say, and I think this is where, this is, this is, this is I think is the most difficult theological question that Christians, you might say, well, how can that be? If God knew, if God knew that this would happen, how can he not be culpable for the fall of mankind? How can that not happen? Well, let me read a little bit deeper. This is from an earlier confession of faith, the London Baptist Confession of Faith, written in the late 1600s, chapter 6, the fall of mankind and sin and its punishment. This is what Christians have historically believed about this. Picking midway up, it says, Adam acted, this is in the garden, Adam acted without, I want you to feel this tension now. Come on, don't, don't be on autopilot now. Don't, don't, don't look at Instagram right now. you got to get this. Adam acted without any outside compulsion and deliberately transgressed the law of their creation 
and the command given to them by eating the forbidden fruit. Okay, so it's Adam's fault. Adam and Eve did it. And by the way, all of us are children of Adam and Eve, and we did it on our own too. Listen to this now. God was pleased and keeping with his wise and holy counsel to permit, we might even say ordain, to permit this act because he had purposed to direct it for his own glory. And you say, wait a minute, Brad, that seems philosophically impossible that Adam was acting of no compulsion, he's guilty, and yet God is in charge of it. In fact, we read in the New Testament in places like Ephesians 1 that God has planned for redemption even before the creation of the world. So God has planned for the fall before he even creates the creation or the first couple in the garden who fell. Do you see the tension? Do you feel the tension? Do I have an answer for you? No, other than to just to see these biblical truths and realize that God is God in such a way that on some level it is inscrutable. But you have to, and this is where humility comes in, you have to see it and you have to accept it, realize it, and rest in it. God is sovereign. Nothing surprises him. Everything is beholden to him. And we, we alone are fully fully culpable for our rebellion against him. Thus, we need a priest. Do you see that? Okay, well, if you thought that was difficult, we're going to get into Melchizedek in just a second. (laughs) One more thing on priests, just one more thing. So priests act on behalf of God, or on behalf of people to God, his Old Testament priests. And then what else does he do? Well, he does this with humility. Verse 2, he can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Now, this is just in contrast to Jesus who has no sin. We just read about Jesus at the end of chapter 4. He has no sin. But he can sympathize. So, so here's, but here's this earthly human priest who needs to be humble because he, he, he is beset with weakness. Because of this, he's obligated, verse 3, to offer sacrifice for his own sins just as he does for those of the people. So he's contrasting these earthly priests with the great high priest, Jesus. And he's going to show us over the next couple chapters how Jesus is better. And so here's this high priest that is going before God to the people, but he's not just bringing before God the problems of all the people and the sins of all the people, but even his own sins. So shouldn't this, just one sort of little second or third or maybe fourth level application of this, shouldn't this produce in leaders of God's people a kind of pervasive, comprehensive humility? I mean, there should be no room for arrogant pastors. There just should be no room for people that lord their authority over men. This is just a little hot. This is just a little a little thing. This just gets under my saddle every time. Just pastors that parade around like people should just bow down to them. They have a little entourage that follows them around, their own parking spots and all this goofy little junk. That's just absolutely I just I just I I I want to stick a fork in my eye when I see stuff like that. And I know this. That's a bad thought. I'm sorry. I know this, I know this because that pride and that arrogance exists in my heart too. It does. But we can never lose sight of the fact that these priests need, need to be humble people. Listen to this, 1 Peter 5. This is, this is Peter speaking now, years later, just about the whole idea of humility and spiritual leadership. 
It's an echo of this humility that the priests in the Old Testament should have because they're going, not as perfect people, but they're going with their own junk too into the Holy of Holies, and they would have to ritualistically clean themselves before they even went into the Holy of Holies. This is what Peter says, 1 Peter 5, So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is to be revealed. Listen, the shepherd, the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. That's the type of shepherds we need. But listen, listen, one little, one little, one little caution against overcorrection. Even though we see arrogance in leadership, not only in corporate America or in every other area of life, but even in the church, let's not overcorrect too much in applying gentleness and humility. Nobody wants, nobody wants a weak shepherd. What I've noticed, this is just my little 18 years of pastoral leadership. By the way, this last Monday, if you didn't catch it, was our 18th anniversary as a church. My little experience in 18 years is everybody loves a pastor who's bold until that pastor says something that they don't agree with, right? <laughs> Thank you, Scott. Glory. Glory. Look, you, you don't want a pastor that will stroke your ego or make you feel good about everything. You need, you need a pastor who sometimes is wrong and is willing to admit it. You need shepherds that are courageous, not perfect, but humble and bold and able to say what needs to be said that sometimes will will challenge you. Okay, enough of that. Where is this argument going? I think the point that he's setting up here is he's showing us that these Old Testament priests, as important as their role was, they were imperfect because they had their own sin, and they, they could, we, bottom line is we need a better priest. We need a better priest. That's, what, that's what's going on in these next few chapters. We need somebody who can finally and fully take away our sin. And now we're getting into the one, of the, most, one of the most challenging figures in the whole Bible to understand. Here I am trying to explain one of the most difficult portions of Scripture in the next 10 minutes. Pray for me, please. Here's the second question. Who is Melchizedek and why is he important? Now, out of the blue, verses 1 through 3 seem easy enough to understand. Okay, he's reflecting on this Old Testament priesthood. Jesus is the better New priest, okay, we got that so far. Verse 4, here's what he says now. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. Okay, we're tracking. Verse 5, so also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And that's quoting Psalm 2, verse 7, which is this glorious royal psalm, so basically the writer of Hebrews is basically just telling us that Jesus is the Son of God, the King, and he's been appointed by God. Okay, we're tracking. Verse 6, as he also says in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. What? Who is Melchizedek, and why is he important? Okay, now to a first century Jew, who's very familiar with the Old Testament, it probably would have been familiar language. But to us, it, it means nothing. Like if, if we were to use some example in American history, like, you know, the Statue of Liberty or George Washington or something like that, 
And we would all sort of instantly know. But for us now, thousands of years removed from this, what's going on? What's happening? Well, to understand, we need to understand who Melchizedek is in the Old Testament. So I'm going to go to Genesis chapter 14, and I'm just going to read a few verses. Melchizedek is this strange, mysterious figure who only shows up once in just a few verses in the Old Testament. So if you think we're going to an Old Testament that's going to make it utterly clear, that's not the case. We're going to have to do a little work to understand, okay? So Genesis chapter 14, and I'm going to read a couple verses starting in verse 17. What's happening here? Uh, This is very early on in the history of God's people. God has just spoken to Abraham a few chapters before. At this point, he's still called Abram. He's called Abraham out, and he's made him his man. Now, it's important to realize This is long before God has even given Israel the law. This is long before Moses. This is long before Exodus. We're we're generations before that. We're at the very beginning of God forming a people as a nation of Israel in the Old Testament. And Abram and his nephew Lot have separated. Lot goes this way. Abram goes this way. And Abram is journeying towards the land that God would give him. Well, at the beginning of chapter 14, just as a little context, these four kings, so it's just these rival warlords that are just wreaking havoc on people. That's the background of Genesis chapter 14. People have always been fighting. And, and these four kings, led by this one, they're just, they're just wreaking havoc on other people. And one of these kings, with some of his henchmen, kidnap Abraham's nephew Lot, and they take him captive. Abraham hears about this, and he gathers just a few hundred guys, 318 I think it is, and he goes and goes G.I. Joe Ranger on, on, on this king, and he fights this king, Keter Lomer is his name, and he rescues his nephew Lot, and he brings him back. So he, it's like this great rescue mission that Abram does, or Abraham does in Genesis chapter 14. And then this is what happens after that great rescue mission in Genesis 14, verse 17. After his, verse 17, meeting Abraham, after his return from the defeat of Keterlomar and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Sheva, that is the king's valley, verse 18, and Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. And brothers and sisters, that's all the Bible tells us about Melchizedek. That's it. Isn't it clear? Okay, so who is Melchizedek? What is going on? A couple things I want you to know. Melchizedek is called a priest of God Most High. This is the first time in the Bible that the word priest is used. In fact, the concept of a priesthood that I just explained from Leviticus and Moses and the law hasn't even been established yet 
Because that doesn't happen until after Israel, all the way through the story of Genesis, finds himself at the end of Genesis in Egyptian captivity. God raises up Moses, rescues them from Egypt. They're at Mount Sinai. They receive the law and they receive the sacrificial system and they wander through the desert and the tabernacle and then they finally make it into the promised land with Joshua and they set up the temple. That, hundreds and hundreds of years later, is when the priests come onto the scene. This is the first time that the word priest is used in the Bible and it's to describe this mysterious figure, Melchizedek. In fact, what it means to just be a worshiper of God is just being established in the Bible. Who is Melchizedek and why is he important? Well, the only other place that it mentions him is then in Psalm 10, Psalm 110. Let me go to Psalm 110, verse 4. David, this is a Psalm of David, and let me just give you a little, a little background of Psalm 110. This is just a Psalm about the kingship of the Son of God, which we know ultimately is Jesus. And Psalm 110 is about this king that will crush God's enemies, and God will put him in his right hand. And then in verse 4, the psalmist, who in this particular instance is David, is reflecting back on Genesis 14. This is the only other time, other than in Hebrews, that Melchizedek is mentioned. And it says in Psalm 110, verse 4, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And that's what's being quoted in Hebrews. So what is the order of Melchizedek? And why is the author of Hebrews, here's the question, what is the connection between Jesus and his priesthood and Melchizedek? Because the author of Hebrews is saying that Jesus is a priest in the order of Melchizedek or in the line. He, 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 what is true about Melchizedek is true of Jesus. What's going on? Okay. Before I try and explain this as best I can, we need to understand that the Old Testament is full of types or shadows. They are pictures that are meant to show us something about who Christ is. That's what a type is. And Melchizedek, in just three verses, serves as a kind of type or shadow of Jesus. How so? Well, he comes out of nowhere. He has no earthly lineage, so to speak. He, he just sort of shows up. There's no beginning and there's no end to Melchizedek's priesthood. It just shows up even before the priesthood is established in an earthly sense. And so that's one connection to Jesus. Jesus is a priest he is our go-between between us and God. His priesthood is established in heaven long before the creation of the world. In fact, God ordained that Jesus would come to earth, die on a cross, take our sins away, give us his righteousness, reconcile us to God even before Creation before sin, before the priesthood, before the law. So Jesus is this eternal priest who has no beginning and no end. That's one way that he's a connection. He's one way he's a connection to Melchizedek. So Jesus is in that order. He has no beginning, no end. But secondly, and this is really fascinating, is that Melchizedek is called a king and a priest. A king and a priest. 
And this is the only person in the Bible, in the Old Testament, that is both a king and a priest. And what is Jesus? We're going to fast forward. Jesus is our king and our priest. In fact, there's this one story in the Old Testament later on where this king, who was actually a good king, tried to also do something that a priest should do, and it went really, really, really poorly for him. Let me read to you that. Okay, I know we're deep into the Old Testament, but I want you to get this. Come on, come on, hang in there. Second Corinthians chapter, Second Chronicles, Second Chronicles chapter 26. This is a story of the one king in the Bible who tried to be a priest. The one king in the Bible who tried to be a priest. Verse 3, this guy named Uzziah, who was 16 years old when he came to power. Second Chronicles chapter 26, we are now centuries after Melchizedek. We're, we're towards the end of the storyline of the Old Testament, and it's this story of this king Uzziah, king over the southern kingdom of God's people, the divided kingdom at this time, before, right before the end of the Old Testament timeline. This is what it says, Uzziah was 16 years old when he began to reign. Imagine that. 16 years old. Come on. Let me just say that I think we don't expect enough of our young people. No, I'm not, I'm not making a joke. No, I'm not making I mean, you can laugh at it. But no, come on. We pamper them. You know, we put them in bubble wrap, you know, and act like, oh, you can't ride your bike, skinny. Uh, Uzziah was 16 years old and he was the king of Israel. So come on, kids can mow the lawn. Come on, let's go. All right. Don't baby, let's not baby our teenagers. Come on, the kids can understand stuff. If Uzziah can be the king of Judah, certainly a 16-year-old can deal with some hard stuff and some hard truth, amen? All right. Uzziah was 16 years old when he began to reign and his reign, and he reigned 52 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jecoliah of Jerusalem. And he did... This is really good. He starts out well. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, according to all that his father Amaziah had done. He set himself to seek God in the days of Zechariah, who instructed him in the fear of God. And as long as he sought the Lord, God made him prosper. Listen to this. He's a great king, even though he's young. He went out and made war against the Philistines, the enemies of God's people. And broke through the wall of Gath and the wall of Jatna and the wall of Ashdod. And he built cities in the territory of Ashdod and elsewhere among the Philistines. Verse 7, God helped him against the Philistines and against the Arabians who lived in Gerbal and against the Munites. The Ammonites paid tribute to Uzziah. And his fame spread even to the border of Egypt, for he became very strong. He was a good king. He's doing the right thing. God is giving him favor, and he's becoming strong. But then he oversteps his bounds, and he tries to do too much. His pride gets in the way. Skip down to verse 16. But when he was strong, he grew proud to his destruction. For he was unfaithful to the Lord his God and entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense, which was a no-no. Only the priest should be able to do that. So here's this king who's been so successful. He's thinking, man, I can do this all. I'm a one-man show. I'm all the people need. And so I will go in and I will alter, uh, offer incense on the, I'll burn this incense on the altar of incense. Verse 17. 
But Azariah the priest went in after him with 80 priests of the Lord who were men of valor. And they withstood King Uzziah and said to him, It is not for you, Uzziah, to burn incense to the Lord, but for the priests, the sons of Aaron, who are consecrated to burn incense. In other words, God's got a, God's, God's got a way and we have to follow it. He's in charge. You can't do this all yourself. Go out of the sanctuary for you have done wrong and it will bring you no honor from the Lord. Verse 19, now here's that he's been rebuked. Uzziah could have humbled himself. He could have said, you know what, you're right. I'm trying to do too much. I'm trying to make it about me. But he doesn't. He buckles down. Then Uzziah was angry. Verse 19. Now he had a censer in his hand to burn incense. And when he became angry with the priests, listen to this. Leprosy broke out on his forehead in the presence of the priests in the house of the Lord by the altar of incense. And Azariah, the chief priest, and all the priests looked at him, and behold, he was leprous in his forehead. And they rushed him out quickly, and he himself hurried to go out because the Lord had struck him. And King Uzziah was a leper to the day of his death. And being a leper, lived in a separate house, for he was excluded from the house of the Lord. And Jotham, his son, was over the king's household, governing the people of the land. Goodness, that took a turn for the worse. Why? Because he was a king and he tried to mix his functions with the priest. What's going on there? What are we to make of this? And here, here we see this. We see Melchizedek is both a priest and a king. What's the connection? Look, Jesus, why would God separate those two functions in the Old Testament? Because we are such prideful people. We are such prideful people that think that we're all we need. Let's just give us a charismatic leader, one guy that can do it all, and we'll follow him. And yet God is saying, no, all of these functions in the Old Testament are actually pointing to what you need, a prophet who will speak God's word, a king who will lead his people, and a priest who will go before. And there is only one who can do all of that perfectly, and it's Jesus. And Melchizedek, is this strange, mysterious figure who pops up out of nowhere to be a kind of type and a picture that the writer of Hebrews draws on for these first century Jews, and he is a shadow that is pointing us forward to Jesus, who's not only a priest, but he's also a king, and he has no beginning and no end. That's why Melchizedek is important. He's a picture of Jesus, no beginning, no end, and he's a king, and he's a priest. In fact, that's the whole, that's the whole conclusion of the writer of Hebrews in chapter 8. Uh, go, go to chapter 8, verses 1 and 2. This is what he says. Hebrews, he's saying basically... Okay, now I'm going to summarize everything that I'm going to say in the next couple of weeks, but that doesn't mean don't come for the next couple of weeks, okay? This is what the writer of Hebrews says in summary to Hebrews chapters 5, 6, and 7. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty of, in heaven, a minister in the holy places in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. So we have a high priest who's not only a priest, he's a king. Do you see that? That's the point of Hebrews, that he's better than any Old Testament priest. He's better than anything that has come before him. And we can go to him. We can trust him. He is worthy to be praised. Here's the final question. How does this help us understand and follow Jesus? 
Well, that's just it. Jesus is, see, he's, see, this is beautiful. I want you to see this. Jesus is not just our priest who takes away our sin. He's also our king who defends us against our enemies and will finally and fully vanquish them, even if our fiercest enemy is our own self that he will finally rid us of. Jesus is not only someone who goes before us to God, but he is the king himself who can handle everything that we need. That's the point of bringing up Melchizedek. I sense that you're not as excited about this as I am, but you should be. So when you see these things, here's what, you, here's, what you want, here's what I want you to do, is I want you to be reading your Bible and say, gosh, this is confusing. What's Melchizedek mean? And then you hunt that trail down and you see, oh, Jesus is a picture. He has no beginning. He has no end. He's not only my priest, he's my king. He is good and all sufficient. He's good. And then I get bogged down in Leviticus and I see these priests doing these things to represent the holiness of God and the sinfulness of man. I say, praise God. God, I don't have to do that. That Jesus once and for all has gone before me to God and has reconciled me and I can draw near to him and I can trust him. That's what Hebrews is written for and it's a drawn out letter to show us the glory and beauty and holiness of God and our neediness and how Christ is the only one who answers all of those problems. That's why Melchizedek exists and I love him for it. In fact, I dare some young parents in this room to at least name their child with a middle name, Melchizedek. Because Jesus is, he's, he's, he's worthy. He's a king and a priest. He's a lion and a lamb. And we can draw near to this priest because it can be trusted to not only be sympathetic with our weaknesses, to finally and fully conquer them all. This is how Jonathan Edwards, the great American theologian, put it in maybe my favorite all-time sermon. I've read this before. It's called The Diverse Excellencies of Christ. The Diverse Excellencies of Christ. And in this sermon, Edwards is meditating on about how Jesus is the most powerful, glorious being in all of the universe, but yet he's the meekest and the most humble. And he's, he's basically... He's basically meditating on the fact that the diversity of excellencies in Jesus, his power and his humility, is a kind of proof of his divinity because no other being could encapsulate these things so beautifully as Jesus does. And that in of itself is a kind of proof of his godness. But this is what he says at the end of this sermon. I love this. Edward says, think of Jesus as both a priest and a king, a lion and a lamb. If you come, meaning to Jesus, you need not fear, but that you shall be accepted. For he is like a lamb to all that come to him and receives them with infinite grace and tenderness. It is true. He has awful majesty. And by that word awful, we don't use it the same way in English today, meaning full of awe. He has majesty, full of awe. He is the great God and infinitely high above you. 
But there is this to encourage and embolden the poor sinner, that Christ is man as well as God. He is a creature as well as the creator, and he is the most humble and lowly in heart of any creature in heaven or earth. This may well make the poor and the poor unworthy creature bold in coming to him. You need not hesitate one moment, but may run to him and cast yourself upon him. You will certainly be graciously and meekly received by him, though he is a lion or a king. He will only be a lion to your enemies, but he will be a lamb, a priest to you. Come to Jesus, dear one. Come to Jesus, sinner. Your only hope. Hear this, hear this, please hear this. Because I, I, I have this sense that every time we gather, there are people that are with us that have grown up in the Bible Belt South, and you think you're a Christian because you've just been sort of fed this moral fable about how God will help improve your life if you basically try hard to do your best. And friends, that is not Christianity. That is not the gospel. Hear me. Hear me. I want you to hear this. That's your only hope. God is holy. We are sinful. And something must stand before you and God on that day. We will meet him and your only hope is what Jesus has done in his perfect life, his sacrificial death, his glorious, victorious resurrection on your behalf and you must trust in Jesus. You must turn from yourself, not your own righteousness, nothing that you do, no good deed. Your only hope is to believe, to trust, to put your hope for your right standing in meeting God in what Jesus has done. That's the gospel. You must do that. And if you're a Christian, you need to be reminded of this again and again and again because we all still have enemies. And sometimes those enemies are the residual of our remaining sin. And we wonder, will this finally, will this enemy of my soul finally be vanquished? And the answer to that, when we see Melchizedek and this picture of Jesus, who's not only a priest who takes away the guilt of our sin, but is a king who will finally and fully extinguish the existence of our sin, we can come to him, we can come to him, and he will be good to us. He's better. He's better than our own righteousness. He's better than our own willpower. He's better than any religious system. He's better than it. He's better come to Jesus. That's Hebrews. And he will be to you like a lamb. And he will be to the enemies of your soul like a lion. Let me pray. Lord, uh, make this picture clear to us. If I've said anything that wasn't right, make it fall to the ground. If I've said anything that's true, make it stick fast to our hearts. Let this not be a sleepy Sunday in the South. There's people in this room who need to draw near to this Jesus, this biblical Jesus, this true Jesus, the king priest, one who died for their sin and one who demands their obedience and is able to free them from their enemies. Lord, would we come to that Jesus? Would we see him? I need to see that Jesus again afresh in my soul. I need him. I need him. I need to be reminded of that Jesus. Oh, 
Holy Spirit, would you come and would you do something that I can't do, that we can't do, that only you can do. Lord, would you come and would you change us? Please, please, please. And I pray that you do it. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.